space, the final frontier. The title of my sermon this morning is To Boldly Go. When you saw that phrase, there were probably two things that came to your mind. The first almost certainly was, that's a notorious example of a split infinitive. Who puts an adverb between to and a verb? Well, maybe that wasn't the first thing that came to your mind. If it wasn't, perhaps what came to your mind was something like this. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. That's right. I borrowed the title from the introduction to Star Trek. It seemed to me appropriate to call to mind the mission statement of the Enterprise because the passage that we're looking at this morning also describes a bold and dangerous mission to bring the gospel to places where it had not gone before. The passage of scripture that we're looking at today is what is often called Paul's first missionary journey. And here for the first time, we see the apostles intentionally moving out of their Jewish context and into a predominantly Gentile world. We find the account of this journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14, and if you have your Bible with you, you may want to have it open there as we go through the message. If you've been following the McChain daily Bible readings, these chapters were in our readings a couple of weeks ago. But just in case you don't recall all of the details, I'll rehearse a little bit of what happens in these two chapters. But before we look at the book of Acts, I want to go a little further back. In fact, back to the book of Genesis, where God gives a promise to the patriarch Abraham. The promise is found in Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3. And here is what God says to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed because of you. Here God promises Abraham that he will not only make him a great nation, but through him all nations will be blessed. That promise wasn't fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. It wasn't fulfilled for many generations after Abraham. But it was echoed by our Lord when he gave the Great Commission and he said, Go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Acts, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of those promised blessings for all nations. We see it when we hear of Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. And we see it again in chapter 10 when Peter confronts the Roman centurion Cornelius. But the primary instrument that God would use to bring the gospel to the nations was not Philip, was not Peter. It was, of course, the Apostle Paul. And Paul would end up planting churches in many of the major cities throughout the Roman Empire. And that enterprise began with this first missionary journey that we're going to talk about today. Let me review quickly what happens in these two chapters, chapter 13 and 14. Chapter 13 opens with a description of the Syrian church, the church in Syrian Antioch, a cosmopolitan city of about a half a million people. Luke tells us there was a strong Christian community there, and the Holy Spirit prompted the believers to set apart two of their number, Barnabas and Saul, for a special mission. The church responded by laying hands upon them and sending them out to bring the gospel to places it had not yet penetrated, beginning with the island of Cyprus. Barnabas was originally from Cyprus, and that could well be the reason why they chose that as the first stop on their missionary journey. Luke notes that when Barnabas and Saul began this journey, they were accompanied by Barnabas's cousin, John Mark. The little missionary band traveled across the island of Cyprus, preaching the gospel in the various Jewish synagogues, until they reached the city of Paphos on the west coast of the island. And there they were confronted by a sorcerer named Elamas who was an attendant of the local governor. And when the governor began to show interest in the gospel, Elamas sought to turn him away from the faith. And as a result, Saul condemned him and cursed him with blindness. And seeing this, the governor, who was of course a Gentile, became a believer. And that's the account that Randy read for us this morning. At this point, there are a couple of subtle but rather important changes that take place in Luke's telling of the story. First, up until this point, Luke has used Paul's Jewish name, Saul. From this point on, he refers to Paul, which was his Gentile name. And that's not surprising because Paul was having success in ministering to a Gentile audience, including here a Gentile governor whose name was Paulos, Paul. And so from this point on, Paul begins to use his Gentile name, Paul. Presumably he does this because this would be more familiar to Gentiles, and so it was a way of exhibiting cultural sensitivity 
to the audience that he was seeking to minister to. So that's one change. Saul becomes Paul. We sometimes think that that happened at the Damascus Road, but that's not the case. It happens here in the middle of this ministry. The second change is that whereas up until this point, Luke has been talking about Barnabas and Saul, now he begins to talk about Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and his companions. In other words, there's been a significant change in leadership. At the start, Barnabas was the primary missionary, and Paul was his associate. But here we have a case where the associate pastor seems to become the senior pastor. How Barnabas handled that, we don't know. The Bible doesn't talk about that. But we can imagine that that might not have been a particularly smooth transition. From Cyprus, the missionary band traveled back to the mainland, and they landed at Perga. And Luke tells us at this point that John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. We'll come back to the significance of that a little bit later. Paul and Barnabas went on to Antioch. Now, you may recall that they had been commissioned by the church at Antioch and left from Antioch, and here now they're coming to Antioch. There actually were several cities named Antioch in the Roman world, and this is a different Antioch than the one from which they had left. We usually distinguish between them by identifying the province where that particular city was located. So the Antioch from which they left was Syrian Antioch, Antioch in Syria, and the Antioch here is Pisidian Antioch. So as you're reading your Bible, you have to keep your Antioch straight, know which Antioch you're talking about. In Antioch, Paul began, as he usually did, by preaching in the synagogue. And when you read that account in the book of Acts, you may have been surprised to see that the Jewish leaders actually invited Paul to speak in the synagogue. But that's really not surprising. Paul was a well-trained rabbi. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were known to be experts in the law. He had studied under Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of the time. And so when the Jews in Antioch found that Paul was in their midst, they probably thought, what a wonderful opportunity to have this great Bible scholar teach us. So they gave him the mic. He got to have the pulpit, and he got to be able to speak to them. And we have a summary of that sermon in Acts 13, verses 16 to 41. I say it's a summary because you could probably read this in less than five minutes, and I doubt very much that Paul ever preached a sermon of only five minutes. In this sermon, he retraced the history of Israel, beginning with the exodus from Egypt, going on to the time of King David, and then the promise concerning a descendant of David, great David's greater son, the Messiah, whom God would send. And he invited his readers then to believe in Jesus, the Messiah who had been promised to David. Paul's preaching elicited a great deal of interest, but it also provoked opposition. 
and some of the Jewish leaders turned against Paul. And as a result, Paul determined that he would now turn more directly to the Gentiles. And according to verse 49 of Acts 13, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, not just within the Jewish community, but throughout the entire community. Because of the opposition of the Jewish leaders, Paul and Barnabas were forced to leave, but they left behind them a very vibrant church in Antioch. From there, they went on to Iconium, where they had a divided response, not unlike what they had experienced in Antioch. And from there, they went on to the cities of Lystra and Derbe. In Lystra, Paul healed a man who had been crippled, a lame man. And that led to the people regarding Paul and Barnabas as gods come to earth. This was a miracle that only a divine being could perform. So they uh, tried to worship them, tried to bring sacrifices to them. And Paul had to labor to prevent them from worshiping them and to tell them that the God that he came to teach about them about was the creator of heaven and earth. They were not little gods. They were there to talk about the big God, the creator God. Finally, some of Paul's Jewish opponents from Antioch and Iconium showed up in Lystra and turned the people against Paul, with the result that Paul was stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead, so severely beaten that he almost died. But Acts tells us that he revived, he got up, and he went back into the city. And then from there they went on to Derby. Luke doesn't give us much detail there, but he tells us that they won a large number of disciples in Derby. Now at that point, Paul and Barnabas could easily have decided to head straight back to their home base in Syrian Antioch. But that's not what they did. What they did was they returned to those cities that they had already visited, including Lystra, where Paul had been stoned. They went back to those cities to provide them with leadership, appointing elders in the various cities so the ministry that they had begun would continue. It would survive. In fact, not only survive, it would thrive. So having left the churches in good hands, Paul and Barnabas sailed back to their home church in Antioch and reported all of the things that God had done through them. And specifically, Luke tells us, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The story of Paul's first missionary journey is an exciting story, and simply recounting what happened can be an encouragement to us. When we see the dedication of those early apostles, we can't help but be challenged to emulate them, to have something of the same courage that they had. When we see how God protected them and how God blessed their ministry, that also can give us confidence that God can do great things through us too. We can be instruments that he uses. There's much in this story that we can apply to our lives, both individually and corporately. 
But I want to call your attention to two principles that emerge from this account that I hope will find helpful. The first is that failure need not be final. In Acts 13.13, we read that when the missionaries came from Cyprus to Perga, John Mark left them. That is, he deserted them. He went AWOL. We're not told why. Why did he abandon them at this point? But he did. Perhaps he was simply overwhelmed by the rigors of pioneer missionary work, by the dangers that they had faced. He could remember the fierce opposition they had from the sorcerer in Paphos. And perhaps Mark was simply scared, frightened of what might lay ahead of them. But whatever the reason, Mark deserted them. And Paul could not forget that. When we come to the end of the book of, of, of chapter 15 of the book of Acts, we, he, we see Barnabas talking with Paul about revisiting the churches that they had founded. And Barnabas wanted to take his cousin Mark with them. He wanted to give Mark a second chance. But Paul was unwilling to do so. Because of his earlier desertion, Paul was not willing to give him another chance. And we read in the book of Acts that there was such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they parted company. They could not reach agreement about whether to take Mark. Now, I don't know how you react when you read an account like that in the Bible, that these two great apostles got in such a fight that they could not agree on what they should do. But I find that kind of honesty and realism rather refreshing. This is not an account that glosses over the problems, that ignores the difficulties. It tells it like it really was, what really happened. There was a nasty dispute between Paul and Barnabas. And probably many of us have seen that kind of thing happen, have seen that kind of thing happen in the church. And so this is simple, simple honesty. This is what happened. But the encouraging thing is, that's not where the story ends. We know that Paul and Mark were reconciled. And we know that because of what Paul writes in the last of his letters, 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Even though earlier in his life, Paul was not willing to give Mark a second chance, somewhere along the line there had been a transition, and Paul came to trust Mark, and he became someone that he relied upon, even as he was coming to the very end of his life and writing Second Timothy. So we can be grateful for that, that eventually Mark and Paul were reconciled. Mark's failure was not final. And our failures don't need to be final either. Can you imagine the kind of embarrassment that Mark must have felt when he went back to Antioch, having abandoned Paul and Barnabas 
tail between his legs, having to admit that he'd left them in the middle of their missionary journey. Can you imagine the shame associated with that? And yet somehow, despite that profound disappointment, profound shame, he was reconciled. His failure was not the end of the story. And we have lots of examples of that in Scripture. Perhaps the most familiar one, the best-known one, is the example of Peter. Three times he denied Jesus. How bad can it get? And yet he was restored and became that rock that Jesus promised he would become. Failure need not be final. God is a God of grace, and he's always ready to grant forgiveness. But as we remember, our failures need not be final. We also need to remember that that's true of the failures of others as well. And if we want to claim forgiveness for our sins, we need to be willing to give forgiveness to those who sin against us as well. Jesus taught us that so powerfully in the parable he gave of the unmerciful servant who was forgiven a huge debt but then was not willing to forgive the paltry debt of one of his fellow servants. We need to be forgiving if we have been forgiven. So one principle we see in our story is that failure need not be final. A second is that forgiveness comes through faith. The only account of a sermon that we have in any detail in Acts 13 and 14 is the sermon in Pisidian Antioch. And he begins this by talking about Jewish history. He talks about the Exodus. He talks about the conquest of the land of Canaan so that the people were given the land that God had promised them. He talks about King David. And then he talks about God sending a Savior who would be a descendant of David, a son of David. And then he makes the startling claim And Jesus was that Savior. Jesus was the Messiah. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem did not recognize him. They didn't see him for who he really was. And they turned him over to Pilate. And he was crucified. And he died. And he was buried. But God raised him from the dead because he was the messianic king. He was the fulfillment of those promises that were given even back as far as the time of Abraham. So he tells the story of the culmination of Jewish history. The Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus. And then he calls them to believe in him. He calls them to faith. In Acts 13, 32 and 33, we read, We tell you the good news, the gospel. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And then he calls his hearers to faith, saying, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. The way to forgiveness is faith. It's believing. Forgiveness and justification are available to those who believe. 
who believe in the one who died and who rose again and who was seen by many witnesses, Paul says. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion together. And the elements in communion are reminders of what God has done so that we might receive pardon, so we might receive forgiveness, so that we might be righteous. We'll take some bread that reminds us that Jesus took on human flesh. He became one of us. He became human so that he could die. And that bread represents his body broken on our behalf. And we'll take some juice that symbolizes the blood of Jesus shed on the cross to purchase our redemption. It reminds us of the dreadful cost of gaining forgiveness for us. It took the very death of Jesus himself. And the question we simply have to ask ourselves is, have we acknowledged our need for the body and blood of Jesus? Have we acknowledged our need for forgiveness, for receiving his pardon? And have we come to the foot of the cross to receive that? If not, could there be a better time or place than at communion to receive him, to come to faith in him? And if we have done so, this meal is a meal of thanksgiving. So as we take the elements, we do so remembering what Jesus has done for us, and so receive these elements with a grateful heart. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge before you that we do not deserve your love and mercy. We confess that we are sinners, that we have been disobedient, that we have not been faithful to you, but we are grateful that you have not left us in our sin, but you have sent your Son to be our Savior. Thank you for his grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. In his name we pray. Amen.